Welcome to Forecast, the foreshadow podcast, seeking glimpses of heaven on earth through conversations about people's lives and work. This season, our theme is Called Forth, Vocation and Faith, asking who we are called to become and what we are called to do. I'm Josh, the editor of Foreshadow, and today I'm joined by Tim Harvey, pastor of Oak Grove Church of the Brethren in Roanoke, Virginia, where he has been serving since 2015. I'd like to speak with him about his work and calling as a pastor, among other vocations, including writing. We will also hear and discuss an essay he recently wrote for Foreshadow on supporting people who fall through the cracks. So Tim, welcome to Forecast. Thanks, Josh. It's really fun to be here. Appreciate the opportunity. Great. Yeah, me too. I'd like to begin with an icebreaker question. So I assume that as a pastor, you have a Sabbath or a day off regularly. Um, and so what are some things that pe people might find you enjoying to doing on your day off or on your Sabbath? Oh, yeah. Great question. Uh, Monday is my day off. Mm. And it, what I, you will find me doing depends very much on the season. My wife is a school teacher, high school math teacher. And so in the summer times when she's off, you will find us on Monday somewhere in the mountains. Mm. Uh, if it's, it's usually too hot to hike. Um, but we have, there's several state parks that have a lake that we'll go sit by and maybe swim. Nice. There's some swimming holes that we know about. Um, uh, <laughs> other places where we just go sit by the creek for the day and read a book or stretch out our hammocks. And so in the summer times, you'll find us uh, there this past Monday, it was un unseasonably cool. And we hiked eight miles on the Appalachian Trail. Mm. Uh, we don't expect to do that much in the summertime. Uh, the rest of the year, nice. the school year, um, you'll probably find me in my wood shop. Mm. Uh, I like to get out of my shop, which is just the garage of our house that I've converted. And I, I, I make various woodworking projects for, for church auctions. Um, I have here in my office today. In fact, I'm meeting a colleague who's just retired and I have a, a big ingrain kind of butcher block cutting board as a retirement mm. gift okay. uh, in the closet nice. here i've got um uh, several urn boxes uh for people's cremains that, ah. uh, that sometimes people will take you know when i do their funerals and so mm -hmm. um built some kitchen cabinets and some office furniture for our home so nice so mondays you'll probably find me with my shop apron on uh sort of september to may okay okay thank you yeah that's a um that's great that you're that you do that wide range of things um, mm -hmm. and the outdoors, working with your hands. So today we'll, we'll be talking about vocation. Mm -hmm. And um, so, so I would like to begin with a more of a general question is um, oftentimes people ask, what is vocation or what is calling? What does it mean to be called to something? So how do you understand vocation or, or calling? Hmm. You know, as, as a pastor, I was just thinking about this, actually, in um, having listened to one of your the other podcasts uh, from this season's series, and, and really wrestling with the idea that God does call some of us into certain, to certain tasks. So we think, you know, prophet, apostle, prophet, evangelist, pastor, mm. teacher, mm -hmm. uh, deacon, I think we, we would put in that role, elder, perhaps in, in some traditions, we don't, we don't recognize elders in the church, the brethren in, the, in an official role. But then there's a sense where God calls all of us uh, to, to love God, to love our neighbor, um, working on a sermon from the Hebrew midwives, Shipra and Puah, and, you know, they weren't necessarily called, but they certainly saw an opportunity that the called people, so to speak, might not have had. Mm -hmm. um, for me as a pastor, I, I do remember and continue to claim a sense of, of call. Um, that, you know, do this rather than that. Um, and, it, and, and being a pastor is really kind of, I would say it's in my blood almost. It's, mm. There is this mm. identity piece. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I'm not sure what else I would do. Um, not that I'm, you know, looking, but, but, you know, what else would I do that, that felt faithful um, mm. to this call that came, you know, 25 or 30 years ago now. Um, so that's how I wrestle with it. Uh, this, is, this is kind of who I am and, and my place in the kingdom of God. Thank you. Yeah. And, I, and I'll, soon I'd like to ask about that your calling to be being a mm -hmm. pastor. But it sounds like you've described there um, various pieces of our, kind of our working model of vocation because um, 
you mentioned that it's in your blood. And, and um, for those who have been listening to Forecast, we have been um, kind of developing a model of vocation that it, it, it kind of involves three dimensions. Um, the first one being the universal calling that you mentioned that we're all called to. And then the second one being a very personal call. And I think that that resonates with what you said about it being in your blood. And it seems like for you being a pastor, based on what you just said, um, is a very personal thing. It's something that maybe God made you to mm -hmm. do. Mm -hmm. um, yes. And, and, and then there's a third um, area that we've dimension, which is kind of the, um, the, the forms that in which many people often take um, common forms that people take in, in their following their calling and ordination being one of those things. And mm -hmm. so maybe the, in, in your life, maybe there's like an overlap where it's, it's pers it's both personal, but it also, it also is um, one of these specific callings that certain people are called to do. Um, but let's hear more about that personal calling. Uh, so can you, can you tell us that story of how, how you were called? Yes, I, I'm glad to. Um, I, I describe my call with the word unremarkable. And, and, and I need to unpack that. My call came through the church doing the things the church needs to be doing. So in college, I very much had a, a spiritual awakening. I was baptized when I was 13, which is fairly standard. You know, there, were, there was a membership class or a bunch of us junior high age, and, and we all went through it and were baptized at the end. Um, but then there was very much a spiritual renewal that began when my congregation gave me a New Testament uh, at high school graduation, and I just started reading it. Mm -hmm. And then got involved in some uh, the, church, the Church of the Brethren in, in Blacksburg, Virginia Tech, uh, where I attended college, uh, not far from here. And got plugged into the church and Campus Crusade was important uh, for a couple of years in there and really started to think that there might be something, a career path there. And, and had people start saying, Tim, I really think you should consider this. And so I remember it was, it was 1990 and uh, it was a summer where our denomination had our, uh, our national, what we call it national youth conference, it happens every four years. And we were at Colorado State University, which has been the, the site of that for, for a long time now. And I was just sitting in the dorm room and I was rooming with someone who had been a pastor of this congregation that I now mm -hmm. serve as it, as it turns out, mm -hmm. um, one of my predecessors here. And, and he just said, you know, Tim, I really think you ought to consider a call to ministry. And that was the, the one more thing I was looking for. The, the really the confirmation of that. Yes, I do mm -hmm. sense God's hand in this you know, more than just mine. Right. So, so there, there I am, you know, at this, youth conference serving as an adult advisor to the to the youth from my home congregation uh, who had given me the opportunity because they saw these gifts and wanted me to have this opportunity to connect to the wider church and leadership. So again, all very normal, very much unremarkable things for the church to be doing. But I also go back to, and I don't remember what year this would have been, maybe 1980, but I was probably a junior high student and it was junior high Sunday or youth Sunday in my home congregation, which was a, a country church of about 125 people. And my job in youth Sunday in worship leadership was to read the announcements. Okay. You know, I mean, how unremarkable is that? And I remember just reading down through the announcements, asking the congregation if anybody had any more, nobody did, thankfully. And I went and took my seat and that was my contribution for the morning. Mm -hmm. One of the, oh, the senior ladies in the church, her name is Reba Spitzer, and Reba's gone on to be with the Lord many years ago, um, but she came to me after church and said, Tim, I think you need to consider the ministry. Hmm. Now, how on earth do you get from a, from a skinny 10-year-old kid reading the yeah. announcements for a call to ministry, right? It, it just <laughs> makes no sense at all, and yet I have to say Reba was right, you know, and, and whether she was just being kind and affirming. At the very least, she was doing what I think the church needs to do more of and needs to take seriously is looking around uh, at our membership and, and tapping people on the shoulder and asking them to serve, whether it's more of just a general sense of, of, of life in the congregation and, and ministries that need, need leadership, or for what we in the Church of the Brethren call the set-apart ministry. Okay. Um, Reba was doing what the church needs to be doing. She was looking at, at 
I mean, she would have been my grandparents' generation. Um, she was looking two generations back, you know, and, and or younger and saying, I think there's something here that we ought to be thinking about. Mm -hmm. uh, and she took the time to come to me after church uh, that, that morning and saying something. And I about probably said, oh, well, yeah, sure, whatever, you know, <laughs> and, but, but here I sit, uh, yeah. you know, 20, 23 years of pastoral ministry later, years later. Yes. Thank you. Yeah. It sounds like there's, there was both um, a personal stirring within you eventually that grew, maybe not at that point when you were that young, but no, not, not at that point. Um, but there was something, but, uh, but also affirmed and um, called forth from the, the people that you mentioned and maybe others that, that noticed those gifts um, in you. And can you say a little more about what, what do you think they saw in you that um, made them, that made them um, encourage you to, to consider um, ordination or being a pastor? Yeah. You know, I don't know. It's, it's, always hard to say what, what, what might they have seen in me. I mean, we were always at church, my family. Um, me and my parents were deacons, Sunday school teachers. Dad still sings in the choir. Um, same, same congregation, but the group church my mom grew up in, mm. uh, that they're still there. Wow. And, um, and so we were just, we were just there. I mean, the church was just the, the big priority of, of our living growing up. I mean, the second Sunday I was in college, I, I went to church, you know, and, and, uh, the church of the brethren there. And so certainly people saw interest, uh, and, and I think a certain amount of ability. I don't, I don't want to be, have a false humility here. I, you know, or anything. I, I think people saw interest and, and ability and, 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 but we're also spiritually connected. Okay. Um, sorry. You know, so. And when you say ability, what, um, can you say a little more about that, like speaking or leadership, what kinds or other kinds of abilities as well? I, you know, I think I've, I, I do recognize in myself the ability to to organize things and to mm -hmm. say, hey, here's this idea. Uh, certainly no one person has all of the, 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 the senses of what this thing, whether it's a ministry event or some direction of the church should be. That's very much a group effort uh, within the congregation. But, but I have felt that I have the ability to to research, to understand possibilities, uh, and to begin to put forward a plan and then to implement it uh, with the group. Mm. Uh, so, you know, leadership administration, that, mm. uh, that kind of thing. Thank um, you. Yeah. Yeah. And, and then going to the, the personal side, um, could you say more about what, what you were experiencing personally that, that led you to, to want to be doing more and to be serving in this way that, that was affirmed by those people that, encouraged you was there yeah what yeah can you i mean do you remember what you were thinking or feeling at the time i might go back to that word unremarkable mm. it, it's just being involved in the life of the church is just something that has always been there and so to not go to church uh to not be involved in in the local congregation has just never been, um, this has never been the possibility that we wouldn't, that wouldn't do that. Mm -hmm. Um, and so then when you, w the church, the brethren is very, has a very flat organizational structure. We're not hierarchical at all. And so showing up and then participating, uh, you know, and, and being involved in things, um, is, they, they kind of go hand in hand for us. And, right. um, Right. So that was just sort of the next thing. Yes. I, I Thank you. Yes. Um, so maybe could you, uh, for our listeners who may not be familiar with the Church of the Brethren, mm -hmm. could you give a, maybe a brief um, um, ex explanation of, of the, just a brief history of it, mm -hmm. just, uh, and maybe what makes it distinct? And, and then with, with regard to being a pastor, what, what does that look like to be a pastor in that denomination, as opposed to a priest in the Catholic or Orthodox tradition? Like what, sure. how is it distinct? Sure. Uh, uh, the brief historical is that we, uh, we come heavily influenced by ger the German pietist and radical pietist movement of the late 1600s and early 1700s. And, and our, our founding member is Alexander Max Sr. He was a, a, a miller in Schwarzenau, Germany. And, and, had this you know, frustration with the state churches of, of the time, which was a fairly common thing at that point in Christian history, and, and gathered 
uh, a group who were just having a Bible study in their home, which was unusual and pretty much illegal uh, at, at that time and place. Um, and, and in August of 1708, they went down to the local creek and they were baptized as adult mm-hmm. believers. And, and that, you know, for some who understand church history, ought to sound a lot like the Anabaptists from Zurich. Mm-hmm. And, so, and so the Church of the Brethren has this, in our, in our DNA, this, the, the spirituality of the pietists uh, of that movement, uh, which was, you know, Bible study and, and prayer and, and group discernment and, and, and lay leader involvement within this radical uh, commitment that the Anabaptist piece, this radical ecclesiology uh, that, that came together. Um, by 1730, they had they'd gotten kind of kicked out of every, everywhere in Germany that they tried to live. And so by 1730, everybody who was brethren and was coming to America was here. And, and if they didn't come to America, they, they sort of disappeared back into whatever traditions they, they ended up in. Hmm. And so we, we've been a North American uh, body uh, for most of our history. But now, probably about a million, million and a half members worldwide. Most of those are in Nigeria. Uh, hmm. The Nigerian uh, church has the... Um, the largest membership of the global brethren bodies. Our, our distinctive, one of our distinctive things for, for Christian denominations is that we were one of the three historic peace churches. So along with the Mennonites and the Quakers, we affirm that all war is sin, which is, which is incredibly countercultural hmm. um, and, and has added a richness and a troublemaking kind of character to our, to our history mm-hmm. um, at times. Uh, so that would be distinctive. Then to be a, a pastor in the church, I will pretty regularly, you know, and by regular, I mean maybe once or twice a year, remind the congregation that, yes, I am the pastor of this congregation. That means I'm the one that stands here and preaches every Sunday. But I say this quite sincerely, it could have just as easily been any of you. And, and in that sense, I am really just another member of the church who happens to be the pastor. Um, I am not the chief decision maker. Um, I don't chair our board meetings uh, or our council meetings. Um, I am just one more member uh, in that sense. Mm-hmm. But there, then there is the functional day-to-day where do people do look to the pastor as the leader. I mean, I, people recognize me as the leader um, and come seeking my, 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 I do know that my voice carries more weight um, than others. And that's just a, a function, I think, of his leadership uh, in general. But it is not a, an authoritarian or a top-down or uh, structure uh, in any way. Mm-hmm. Thank you. That's, that's helpful. And, and what you were describing earlier, it's, uh, it's, you said it, I think you described it as flat in terms of non-hierarchical. That, mm-hmm. that I, can, I really get that picture. And so it, um, for, do you serve communion? Is that one of your roles, for instance? Do you baptize oh. as well? Or are there like kind of sacraments in the Church of the Brethren that you are responsible for? Uh, not not individually. So the one the one way I like to describe brethren theology is that it's not terribly complicated. That if that if Jesus said we ought to do something or we ought not to do something, then we try to do those things. Mm-hmm. And one of the decisions that brethren made early on was to link the the Last Supper, the story of the Last Supper from John's Gospel, where the foot washing happens, with the Synoptic Gospels. And so it was not until 1958. You know, we began in 1708, so it's not till 1958 that brethren congregations are authorized to serve bread and cup communion mm. separate from the full, what we call the love feast, where we examine ourselves, we wash feet, we have a meal, and have communion. Mm. And, and I would do that differently. I actually wish we had bread and cup communion more often than we do. But in our congregation, we, we have communion six times a year, twice with the love feast, Monday, Thursday, and World Communion Sunday. And then four other Sundays, New Year's Day, uh, usually the first, first Sunday of Lent, uh, Pentecost, and then the often we'll just pick a day. To, there's not, a, not really a lot of church holidays in August, <laughs> and so we just pick a day usually in August. Okay. Um, and, and, and I remember one time I asked a church member, I said, Can we, I'd like to do a sermon series on communion. Could we have communion every Sunday during Lent? And he's like, oh, I don't know. That that feels like a lot. You know, we don't want it to become too familiar. <laughs> uh, okay. okay. And and I, I, you know, I make light of that, but the, but he was serious. Um, I, I, and anyway, um, so so I usually our deacons serve communion. Okay. Uh, sometimes I'll take my place, and you know, either we serve it in the pews, or people come forward. 
Um, sometimes I'll take my place in the serving line. Other times I'll be the one kind of refilling the, the cups or refilling the bread. Um, okay. as need be. Interesting. Yeah. Um, what would you say is the key to, to being a pastor in terms of what's at the heart in the church of the brethren, what's at the heart of your role? Like what, uh, if you know, if you know what I mean, uh, if you mm-hmm. could say maybe in, not in one word, but in one, like. Uh, concise idea what does it mean to be a pastor hmm. i would say tend the flock tend the flock that, that our churches of the brethren have tended to not be large um and and um tended also to be rural so so you do get a lot of close family connections, whether biological family or the family of faith. And so connections um, are extremely vital to us because connections are so vital. We do tend to be conflict averse, um, but, but tending the relationships uh, and helping the congregation move toward, you know, goals that's identified. Um, mm. We do also tend to be very socially justice-minded, and so lots of social types of outreaches to the community to helping the congregation advance its program um, probably the, occupy the, the biggest portion of my time. Okay, okay. And, and, and does that include um, visitations? When you say tending the flock, is a lot of that yes. pastoral care? And yes, okay, thank you. Yes, yes. I'm, 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 in fact, this week's been pretty, pretty big uh, between hospital visitation and then just some... Um, just some of my seniors who are shut in or whatever. I've been, uh, been in a lot of homes this week. I see. Mm. Thank you. Yeah. So that kind of transitions into my, my another question I had, which is about um, when you say tending the flock, um, I've heard a lot of people describe um, being a pastor or a priest or, um, or an ordained leader as um, a calling that helps to equip other people's callings helping them to discern their callings and fulfill their callings as the people of God, as the church. Um, Would you agree with that um, description? And if so, what are some ways that you do that for your congregation? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, One of the more interesting stories recently in our congregation is we have a retired uh, man who uh, his career was that he sold tools and, and he's been retired for probably 20 years, 15, 20 years. He's very successful uh, in his career, and he continued to read Tool magazines uh, just because you know that was his love. And the editorial of some year, couple of years ago was about an organization called Sleep in Heavenly Peace, and and they they this organization builds beds for children who don't have one, mm. and and that wow. caught Dave's eye, and so he he flew out to Idaho where the the nonprofit is headquartered and found out how they did it and started a chapter here in Roanoke that is, has been a major outreach uh, of our congregation and lots of community partners. And it was so fun to help facilitate, you know, my, me and our other pastor helped facilitate that within the congregation. Dave did all the really the hard work and made all the connections happen. Um, but to see him come alive, Mm. Um, spirit, it was a really time of spiritual renewal for him, mm. uh, even as we've uh, continued that. So, you know, to see that and, to you know, bring that in as sermon illustrations and, and mm. um, moments for mission and worship service and um, newspaper articles, you know, and, and this news coverage in the community uh, and to watch congregation members get in on the, the building and on the deliveries. Mm. So that has been um, significant. One other thing that I do is for our district of, of congregations, um, I serve on a committee called Calling the Called. And it's a, it's a committee that's designed, we create, we have an event, happens every other year, where we ask congregations to look around in their membership and say, hey, are there people who you think ought to consider a call to the set-apart ministry? And then we invite them to, to a weekend retreat where we bring in people from our denomination. We bring in local pastors to tell their call story, to talk about how ministry happens, how you, how you start the process toward, towards ordination, um, to give people the opportunity to test that. And, you know, we're very upfront that, that just because we've invited you here, maybe the answer is no. It doesn't mean you're unfaithful or not fit to serve in some magnificent way. Um, but, but since saying, that, no, I don't think God is calling me in this direction is just as important outcome as saying, yes, I think it is. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, there are a couple ways there that we really work at um, 
yeah, calling and vocation and mm -hmm. making sure people have the opportunities to pursue those things. Yes, thank you. Yeah, so you've given an example of, of both um, um, encouraging people to discern their calling to the set-apart ministry and mm -hmm. encouraging people in their, I don't know, um, kind of maybe lay person's ministry or mm -hmm. the ministry in the world or how, however, there's many ways one can describe it. Um, that story that you gave of that man um, fits with a, qu a question that a listener had uh, on about a, a question they had about a previous episode about finding their vocation later in life. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, the, the, the person you mentioned, I think you said he, he had retired and, yep. but he had found this new vocation of, of this ministry of building beds um, and so that's really helpful because uh, the person was was wondering about just how they can. So they started off as a lawyer, but um, they've recently been uh, more interested in, uh, in writing and feeling of a calling to write. Oh. And so they've been they've been wondering about that. Um, so. Um, so 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 the example you gave really fits with that in, in helping mm -hmm. a person later in life. Um, to discern their vocation. Um, is there anything else that you might be able to say or any other examples you can give of someone um, later in life in your congregation or whom you know, um, finding, sensing a, a calling from God to do something maybe different than what they've been doing um, earlier in their life? Probably a lot of the stories that I would tell are people who, when they were able to retire, um, pursued. So there was a man, another man in our congregation who had been licensed to the ministry many years ago, but when he was finally able to retire his job as a pharmacist, then he is now pursuing ordination and he's currently serving as the pastor uh, of a congregation uh, not far from here. Mm -hmm. uh, I have another friend who's a retired attorney, uh, another attorney as it turns out, uh, she's retired, but really has gotten involved in some local race relations and reconciliation works here in the community and has uh, started a, a committee and a little, they're not a nonprofit, but an informal organization um, trying to educate uh, and, and people and then also to work at reparations here in the local community. Uh, and so she, you know, brings a great legal mind and talent to that, but not as a lawyer, but just as someone who is, you know, has the ability to, to in time now to make connections and figure things out and um, create something that didn't exist before. Mm, yeah, that's great to see, to hear how she's using her skills from a previous role in the new calling that she's in. Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. Thank, thank you. And, um, and so for you, uh, you're, you're also, um, what are some other vocations that you have is, uh, would you, and uh, would you say that, um, there are, uh, I know that you, I know that you are also a husband, a father, um, you're also a writer. Um, you have you have a blog. You've published in various magazines, including Foreshadow. And the way I met you was through a writing public theology class that we were both taking online. Um, so, how do those other vocations, and there might be more, um, how do those fit together for you? Um, how are you able to um, not only juggle the different tasks that you have um, and interests that you may have, but also understand how those fit with your identity? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I, I sometimes wrestle with is this um is this call or is this midlife crisis um but you know so i've been a pastor for 23 years now in three congregations and there's there's a lot of that that's very similar even though my congregations have been very different there's a lot of the the job that is the calling is very similar from place to place. So there is very much a part of part of me that's very much looking to say, okay, I've got these experiences. I don't really have any desire to, to do what I'm doing anywhere else, but is there some other way to take what the, the life experiences and, and, and things I've learned along the way and translate them out into some other, other avenues. So that really explains the writing. Hmm. Um, you know, is it possible to you know, to write some articles and you know, I'm working on a book that may or may not ever may or may not ever be finished or published, but you know, that really is a sense of, Hey, here's what I've learned. Here's who I am. Here's what I'm seeing around me. Can we go deeper with our theological understanding, our ecclesiology and offer the world a better solution uh, of what life and faith might look at together? Mm -hmm. Um, 
So that explains the writing. Mm -hmm. uh, the woodworking is just fun. And there's there's days where I think it would be fun to, you know, have a little side gig as a woodworker. And then I'll be, um, you know, I'll be someplace at a, a festival or something and there'll be, you know, booths and exhibitors and there'll be somebody there selling woodworking it looks exactly like mine. And I'm thinking, I have no desire to sit at a festival with a, with a, with a table or a, an arrangement of things and waiting for people to come by that. I don't want to do that. I, I like making things, but I don't want to put okay. that kind of effort into that. Right. Um, and so my woodworking has kind of filled, it's kind of plinkoed down a little bit or you're filtered down to the appropriate level where it brings great satisfaction um, and gives me just enough income to buy the next board. And um, so I don't okay. usually spend my own money on, on woodworking. I, uh, I sell enough to break even. Okay, problems. that's nice. Uh, you know, and um, so, yeah, those, those are where the other pieces. And then, and then family, you know, we've got three adult children and, and two of them are married and um, they, they all live fairly close by. And so that... Um, uh, is, a, is, is glad to have that family close. Yes, uh, that's for sure. Yes. Yeah, that's interesting to hear what you said about um, writing. It sounds like for you, writing is a way to maybe, um, as you said, go deeper theologically. Um, mm -hmm. And so much of your writing then um, comes from your experiences and, and your ministry as a pastor. Is, is that right? Yeah, that and in the community, in the community, um, yeah. community and reading that I do. And I remember when I came here to Oak Grove, I hadn't been here very long. And I started hearing people saying, you know, Tim, when you started your sermon today, I couldn't figure where you were going. But till you got to the end, I saw how it all fit together. Mm. And I had never thought that that's what that's what I was doing. Um, but I do think, and as I've continued to write, I, I think I really have adopted that saying, Hey, let's, let's take what we think this text says, or what we think the solution to this problem is, but maybe there's a, there's something that we're not seeing, uh, or maybe there's a new way of looking at it or understanding things and, and ending up in a more faithful place. Um, mm. and so I do find myself trying now, sometimes you, every now and then I'll write an essay, uh, and in fact, for the class that we were in together, um, the last essay that we wrote, I was really excited about. And I showed it to my wife and she read it. She's like, wow, you got a lot going on there. <laughs> it was like, it needed to either be half the length or three times the length. <laughs> but, you know, sometimes you, you miss. Mm. Well, I, I think I know what you're saying, because in your essay that, uh, that you wrote for Foreshadow about mm. um, um, gun, viol gun violence, although mm. I think at the heart, it's about people that are falling through, fall through the cracks, yes. um, whether that's people who have um, been victims of gun violence or other issues. Um, your angle there is, is really um, what we have left undone. And, mm -hmm. and, and for our listeners, um, by the time this episode is published, um, your article, Tim's article should have been published by then. So you can, you can go and, and read it or, or wait till the end of this episode to listen to the, to the essay. So you, so that you know what we're talking about right now, but um but it's a very, um, you're approaching it from a different angle, which mm -hmm. is um, what we have left undone, causing us to think about um, the things that we don't usually think about. Um, because oftentimes we think about what we do, um, whether what, what, we, what we do right or what we do wrong, but we don't think about what we've left undone. Um, and so, so, so it sounds like, is that a strategy that you use, whether in your writing or in your sermon preparation to kind of... Um, address something from an, 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 a surprising angle yeah. to, to get people to think differently? Well, and maybe not even a surprising angle. So that, that the title of that essay by what, and by what we have left undone is simply a phrase from the prayer of confession. Mm -hmm. So, you know, forgive us for the things we have done and for the things, for what the sins we have committed, what we have done and what we have left undone. And to ask the question, what does that really mean? You know, what is it, what does it actually mean? I think we know what it means to confess the things we've done. But to think, what, what have we left undone? What are the, th to think about the things we're not thinking about? Um, and, and I was at a, a conference recently where, um, uh, where, where one of the, the main points of the conference was, how are we connecting our liturgy to the work we're doing in, in our lives, in our communities? So that we don't just come to worship and, and run down through the order of worship and sing the hymns, but not really listen to the words. Mm -hmm. And and to say, you know, the, we recite the Lord's Prayer every Sunday, um, 
but then go out and 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 not have our uh, have our our deeds uh, match our our. our our, our beliefs, mm-hmm. which I think is just another form of saying we're to love God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love our neighbors as ourselves. I, I, I think it's just another form of saying that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, trying to connect this, this phrase from our liturgy to this person's life that gets described in the story uh, and realizing that the very good things that we're doing, which, we, which are worth doing and worth doing well and worth continuing, weren't connecting uh, to this person's particular circumstance. And, and what do we do about that? Mm. Yes, yes. And and your essay is an I think an example of how you're connecting those things. Um mm-hmm. I suppose you could and I believe this essay was based on a sermon um that you gave. So and so I'm sure in through a sermon you can make those connections too. And and you probably do make those connections between the liturgy and your your life. But um but just as I'm re- reflecting on it now it seems that through writing about it, you can reflect on it more deeply, as you said. You mm-hmm. can give more examples to hash out those um, those connections, and um, and somehow make those connections in in the reader's mind um, maybe stronger. Because um, when they're reading it, when they're reading more stories and more of an explanation, they can understand more of what you're thinking. Um, is is that right? Yeah, you can you can get a little more complex maybe in a, in a written piece than you can in a sermon um, because, you know, you have it in front of you and you can go back and say, wait a minute, I've, I've lost a train of thought. And, you know, unless somebody kind of looks at me with a puzzled expression in their face while I'm preaching, it's, it's, and I can see that and, and cycle back uh, and say something again. Otherwise the moment's gone and, and you maybe, maybe you figure out where the, where the point's going later on, or, or maybe you don't. Mm-hmm. Now we, um, I'd like to talk a little bit more about your um, your essay, Tim. Um, in your essay, you you do write the reason that you joined the the commission um, on gun violence pre- prevention. Um, you you mentioned your your um, membership as, as in the Church of the Brethren as being one of the reasons um, mm-hmm. because it's a as you mentioned it's a historic peace church. Um, and your church has always, as you say, pr- prioritized ministry to the entire community. Um, but I was curious um, if, if you could say a little more about what led you to join the commission at that time that you did. If, was there any, any other particular reasons that you joined it that um, perhaps th- did, you, did you feel a calling to join it? And, if, and, it um, and, and I know calling is a very loaded word, but, right, um, yeah, yeah. but if you could describe that a little bit more. Well, so I've, I've been in my current congregations for seven years, but I've pastored in the city of Roanoke for 18. So my previous conversa- congregation was also in Roanoke City. And it has always made sense for those congregations to be involved in the civic life of the city uh, in different ways. But, but people know me. And, and I've gotten to know the city and, and know the, the, what I like to call the beautiful places and the ugly places and you know, the, the joys and the, the concerns and all of those things. Um, I'm also convinced that one of the most important uh, passages of scripture for the church today to be thinking about is, is, is God's instructions to the people, the exiles in, in Jeremiah 29, which is pray for the peace of the, or the shalom of the city where I've led you into exile. Mm-hmm. Um, I do think there's a sense where, where the American church, a lot, of, a lot of people feel like we're in exile, that the culture is kind of leaving us behind. And so what's our response to that? And you know, that's a whole other uh, you know, topic of conversation. But I think one answer is to seek the shalom, that, 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 if, that if everybody, that we will prosper as the whole city prospers. And so to be involved in, in, in ministries uh, or in, in civic events that are designed to help everyone prosper. And so the Gun Violence Prevention Commission has, has, had, some per, has had some permutations to it, I think is the right word. Uh, yeah, yeah. As we've gone along, it, it started out as a much larger group with a certain task, and then it, it's kind of filtered down as people 
had time uh, to continue working or didn't. Um, and there were some structural decisions that needed to be made to reduce it from its much larger group to its current nine. And I was, you know, had something to offer and, and had the ability to continue on. Uh, and, and city council was, was uh, glad to, you know, give me that opportunity um, and, and appointed me to this. And so, yeah, so, so taking our peace witness and making this very practical application in, our, in what's going on currently in our city um, very much fit in with my vision of pastoral ministry. Mm. Yes, yes. And yeah, I'm just reflecting on that. Um, often, so often we think about, uh, I think about pastoral ministry as just being um, for the, the congregation. Mm -hmm. But, um, but with that verse that you quoted about um, the call to seek the peace of the entire city, and that will bring peace to your community, your own smaller community is um, a powerful reminder that, um, that the calling to 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 tend the flock um, can involves those outside of the flock as well, um, and and that, that and I think your your essay illustrates that. Um, mm -hmm. um, partly, I, I think of also Jesus's words to to love our enemies and to love our neighbors, to love those who are on uh, um, on other sides of the aisle, so to speak. Um, and in your essay, that's not exactly the case, but ju I'm just saying that to, to, to show the, how our calling is to not only love those in our community, but, um, but that's, that's interesting that in your role as a pastor, you're also looking beyond your community and, 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 um, and, and, and seeing how reaching out to the wider community can benefit your community. Um, what advice would you give to listeners um, with regard to um, to doing what you illustrate in your essay, um, stepping into the stories of those people who are often forgotten? If if there's if we have some listeners who are thinking for themselves, who are the people in my community that I have neglected or um, who, who follow through the cracks? Or if they're asking themselves, what what have I left undone? Um, what what or is some advice that you can give? I, I would say just, you know, start showing up in the places uh, with people or organizations who are addressing those situations and, and just start getting involved and earn the right to hear people's stories. Um, one of the things that I learned very early on in, in ministry is that if you really want to understand what's going on in the community, talk to the school teachers. Hmm. Uh, they will know because the schools get everybody. Mm. Um, and, and, you know, several of the schools here in, in the city of Roanoke, uh, the, the high school where my kids went, my wife teaches, has the wealthiest neighborhoods and the poorest neighborhoods. Uh, the other neighborhood is most, the other high school is mostly African-American students, but from a fairly narrow economic slice, it's a very different character. Um, but, but they will know what's going on in the community. And, and I guarantee you, there's not a school in America that won't take a volunteer. And so if, if, you know, find out who the volunteer coordinator is and, you know, once you pass all the background checks and all of that, uh, show up and read to third graders or second graders um, once a week for a year. Um, find out if there's an association of churches, you know, that are, that are doing those things. Um, you will learn what your community is really like if you, if you have an angle. And, you, and every church has teachers in it, you know, talk to them. You will, you will learn what the needs of the community are uh, most quickly in that way. But, you know, Roanoke also has a rescue mission. You know, we also have a Habitat for Humanity chapter. You know, those places are out there. And if you're willing to go just a little bit farther than the, the um, well, to use an unkind phrase, the kind of hit and run uh, volunteer opportunities where we show up, do our thing and go home. Mm. If you're willing to invest and push in a little deeper and, and keep showing up and, 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 and learning people's names, mm -hmm. those opportunities will come. And you might just find something that that awakens, you know, we talk about vocation or a vocation later in life. Um, you know, we, we I think we like maybe maybe we, maybe this is too simplistic, but we think that God's just going to appear to us. But sometimes it's in the actual I mean, I think the people of Israel had to before they crossed the Red Sea, they had to put their feet in the water, you know, <laughs> then the waters parted. Um, 
that when we get out and actually start getting involved, things start awakening mm. within us, mm-hmm. whether they're just our normal com- heart of compassion, uh, there is, or there is more of a sense of call. Mm. Uh, yeah, that's interesting. As, as a writer, I think of that in terms of some, in my experience with writing, sometimes um, if I don't have an idea to write about something, um, uh, I may not, and, and, and I just say, well, I don't have an idea, I won't, I won't write anything, then nothing will come. But if I just sit down and start writing, even if it's a random thought, I, I find that that develops into something and it builds. And I, I find that there's some kind of theme that's emerging. And it's similar to what you're saying, um, that maybe if, you, if one is just sitting around waiting for um, an opportunity um, to, to knock on one's door, um, maybe that won't come until that person goes out and starts knocking on other doors and, and going out. And, 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 and even if, you know, you might have a few missteps or um, do some things yeah. not imperfectly at first, by going out, you might start mo- getting momentum and, and seeing where uh, you're being led. And maybe you'll find God at work in that, in that process. Um, and, and yeah, you'll find plenty of things that you, that aren't your thing. I know one time I took a group, a Sunday school, young adult group to the men's shelter. I, I was a preacher at the men's shelter that night. And, and one of the members of our group was a, was a 25 year old woman. And the leader of the men's shelter said, I'm glad you're here, but don't interact with any of these men. It, it, that it's just, it, and that sounds, he wasn't trying to be sexist. He wasn't trying to say anything to her. just said in a men's shelter, um, they really just felt that they had a good a long history of they would just need men to be a part of this, this ministry. And, and thank you so much for being here. And, and she was okay with that. Yeah, that sounds really, mm-hmm. you know, kind of hard, but, but it made sense in the context that there were other places that, that this individual could serve. Uh, but maybe this wasn't the, the, the place. Okay. And so knowing, knowing what you're bringing and, and, and knowing the context and knowing the needs of the group um, is, is also very important. Mm. Yes. And so when someone is embarking on um, a, a form of ministry, whether it's volunteering at a school or a shelter, or um, if someone is um, doing pastoral work like you, um, there is an element of um, risk, vulnerability, um, self-offering, self-giving of oneself, mm-hmm. and, and that comes with, with um, challenges. Um, what would you say? So, so that... Rem- so that resembles in many ways the, the, the ultimate example we have of ministry, which is Christ mm-hmm. um, giving himself, um, his, his continual outpouring of himself in his, his life and in, on the cross. Um, and, and so in a, we, we, were, we were having a conversation a little earlier about, about those um, sacrifices that come with, um, with pastoral ministry. Um, but I think you would also say that there's a joy and there's a need for, for this. Um, so what would you, what would you say um, about that? Can you say a little more about that? I, the one thing that, that the one lesson of pastoral ministry that, that really has to be caught, not taught is, is that there will be a certain amount of pain that comes along with it. Obviously, there's the pain, you know, when a loved, beloved member of the congregation dies, you know, or you see them suffering and dying. And those, those are, but, the, but the, the pain I'm talking about is the pain of, of people opposing you. Uh, thankfully, I've not had a great deal of that in ministry, but, but, but there, that, is, that is very real. Also, the pain of people disagreeing with you to the point where they, they end up someplace else. And so during COVID, every one of my colleagues has members of churches, their church, that are now worshiping in some other congregation because they disagreed with the, the mask policy. Mm, wow. um, they disagreed with okay. the politics of it. And so here are people that you've, you've labored alongside, you've ministered alongside, you've, you've poured your, your life and your heart into, you've baptized, buried loved ones, whatever. And suddenly this other thing was thrust upon us and now they're at another church and it is very difficult. And, and I don't want us to, to sit here and talk like I've worked through all this myself, but this is, this is something that we're all still dealing with. It, it's hard to get where Paul was, where, you know, where he says, you know, look, you know, Paul, I, water, I planted and Apollos watered, you know, or whatever, I planted seed, whatever, whatever that progression there is to be thankful that, that these people that you, 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 
you led to Christ or you baptized or whatever, they're still connected to the church. Um, it's mm. just not your church. Mm. I don't know that many of us are there yet. Um, and, and there is part of that. And so, but that doesn't mean that the calling is not worth doing. It doesn't mean that it's not worth, you know, talking to our high school seniors and saying, look, when you go to college, we need people who are, who are intelligent and hardworking and, and, you know, might be considering being a doctor or an engineer or, or computer scientist. We need theologians. We need, we need pastors our churches need leadership. And it, and there's, there's a hardness to it. There's a difficulty to it. There's, there's, you're going to, your pain is going to be triggered and touched and, and you have to be able to be strong enough of faith and of character to, um, to keep on, you know, to heal from that and, and, and to have that support system and go on. Uh, that's not to say that that's every day. It's not to say that, you know, it's all doom and gloom. There's so much joy, uh, you know, to, to go to the hospital and be the first member other than the family to hold a new baby. Uh, and, and there's something holy about being there when the beloved love member breathes their last breath. That's hard, but it's, but it's, it, there's also a rightness and a goodness to that in, mm. in its way. Uh, or, to, or to figure out something in the text and share it with the congregation, have a really good Bible study. Um, but we need people who are willing to push through controversy, the, the public, you know, just the turmoil in our society right now, who are willing to say, this is where we need to be. And, and you're going to have opposition but we need people strong enough and intelligent enough to be able to stand and say, no, th this is the way to go. We need to go this way. Who's with me? Um, knowing that, that not everyone will. Mm -hmm. Yes. Because, because the role of pastor is very relational. It, that's at its heart. As you said, tending the flock um, mm -hmm. that's, I can see how that brings both the, the deepest joys and also the deepest pain. Um, when things are going wrong or when things are going right. Um, right. Thank you. Um, that, yeah. that's, thank you for that. Mm -hmm. um, before we um, finish our conversation, um, could you share where you find spiritual nourishment as a pastor? Because I hear that um, for many pastors, it's, it's often difficult in the sense that you're the one leading yeah. the service on a Sunday. Um, and where, when one, a lay person would normally be receiving nourishment in a service, mm -hmm. you're the one that's facilitating that for others. So, so where, where do you find ways to connect with God in, in, in the midst of your vocation, your various vocations? Mm -hmm. um, I, you know, I find <clears throat> um, here of late, I have found a lot of strength in really good liturgy. Um, so the, the prayer of confession, for instance, that is sort of the inspiration for this, for this essay, um, has been a part of our worship service. I added for thinking we would just do it every, for a couple of weeks during Lent, uh, and, and, it, and the congregation really responded to it well. And so we left it in most, mm -hmm. it's there most Sundays, not every Sunday. Um, but, but really good liturgy that, that is deep and, and really draws us into the presence of God. Um, really good hymn singing which we do hear my congregation very well uh, with, you know, organ and piano. Most Sundays, that's our accompaniment style. Um, um, and that doesn't mean all necessarily old hymns, but, but, but a lot of the, 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 the traditional, the ones that have stood the test of time um, uh, really deep theology. There, there are a lot of theologians out there uh, doing some really good writing right now that have kind of um, stumbled across, stumbled upon Anabaptism. And they may not claim that for their own heritage, but they've kind of found it uh, as a sort of a third way in the midst of all the chaos of our of our public discourse. Uh, and 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 those are some of the some some deep uh, readers. So I, I read books, you know, read blogs, uh, a couple of pastors I listen to online. Um, so those those are the ways. Just to sort of you know the strength of the local community and communion. Uh, I mentioned earlier. I'd love to you see our congregation do communion a little more. I've just found great uh, great spiritual strength in the Eucharist. Uh, here of late whenever I can get to it okay thank you well we, thank you Tim for your time it's um, I think we, we, we've had a good kind of just a glimpse into the pastoral ministry um, the challenges and but also the the deep joys of it and and maybe um, to a smaller degree um, our listeners can can relate in the sense of how we're all called universally to um, to to be in relationship with, with God and with each other 
and um, and so so you've given a lot of um, helpful pointers and ex examples of of ways that um, that can hopefully encourage our listeners in in the various ministries they're a part of, and as they're trying to discern what they're called to do. So thank you, Tim. Yeah, thank you, Josh. I appreciate the opportunity to, to um, add this to the to the, your podcast. It's, it's a great series you have going this year, a great theme, and it is so vital for us to think about who we are in light of what God is calling calling us to be, but also then the needs of the world uh, around us and how we can spread the kingdom uh, in that way. Thanks. And, and before we finish, can, do, do you mind just sharing, or can you share a little bit about any projects you're doing? Um, you mentioned a book. Maybe you don't want to go into detail about that for listeners, but any, any are there any projects or final words that you that you'd like to share with our listeners that they can know about, or the website for for your church if they want to to um, to learn more about it? Yeah. So our, our my church's website is oakgrovecob.org. The blog that is there is to, are almost exclusively my sermons. Um, I don't do a lot of blogging right now, um, but that is a place just to. Uh, right before I print my sermon on Sunday morning, I copied and pasted into the blog. Uh, so you can kind of read along with what I'm thinking about. If I had a blog, though, a lot of what I'm preaching about would end up there. The book that I'm working on is, is, is I go back and you never get to choose your own title if you're an author, but, but if I were to choose it, it would either be an American liturgy uh, or a letter to my church. And basically, it's an attempt at a confession of faith. The church has written a lot of confessions of faith over the years, but there's been plenty of times when the church didn't feel the need to say everything, that there was much about what's historically been affirmed about the church that they would still affirm. But for the moment, there's a listing of several things that we think um, we've either gotten off track or need emphasis. And so that really is what the book is to kind of say, here's where I think we are um, in these apocalyptic years. Um, and here's, here are the six things that I think the church really ought to be emphasizing uh, uh, moving forward. Uh, and so that's, that's, that's what it's an attempt to, to say, I, I, to take inspiration from the Schleitheim Confession of 1525, uh, which the Anabaptists wrote, um, affirming a lot of the historic creeds, but saying there's these six areas where we think we've gotten off track. Um, mm -hmm. okay. So those, and then just a handful of things like, hey, that would be interesting to write about uh, that, I, that I may or may not ever get to, but. Uh, I do try to keep a working list. Well, I, I hope and look forward to reading more of things that you write. So thank you. Thank you. by what we have left undone. Jada Williams addressed the Gun Violence Prevention Commission in Roanoke, Virginia, with a conviction formed from tragedy and tinged with the tiredness of someone who has labored long with little to show for her work. Speaking in an unremarkable city hall conference room, she had come to tell us the story of her teenage son, Jamal, who was the innocent victim of a gang-related shooting during the summer of 2021 a tragic situation of being in the wrong place at the wrong time. The shooting left Jamal with significant long-term disabilities. In the month following the shooting, Jada barely left Jamal's side. Her fierce maternal care, however, came at a high price. Caring for Jamal meant quitting her job so she could be at his bedside. Quitting her job meant spending the savings intended to purchase a home for her family. Spending her savings meant being unable to afford rent, so now she and her family, including three other young children, live in the basement apartment of a church member's home. At times, Jamal's needs were so demanding that her other children spent the weekend with their teachers. Our commission's agenda this particular evening left us mired in the data of gun violence, assault and murder tabulated into neat statistical reports and identified by colored dots on a map of our city. 
The poison determination in Jada's voice, however, reminded us of the deadly importance of this work. What might have been most striking about Jada's remarks that evening was that she was not angry with us. In fact, she expressed deep gratitude for this volunteer appointment. But Jada was determined to be heard. Since that night when her family's life was changed forever, Jada has tried everything she can to get help. She has visited every social service agency in our city seeking assistance with housing, nursing care, and support for her children. In every instance, she has come away empty-handed. It turns out that our city has an abundance of agencies that exist to provide assistance to persons in all kinds of circumstances. All kinds of circumstances, it turns out, but hers. Everywhere Jada turned, it seemed that she didn't quite fit the mission of the agency or purpose of the charitable organization that otherwise exists to provide assistance of one kind or another. She came to the commission to insist that as we seek solutions to prevent gun violence, we not neglect to find solutions for victims of gun violence like Jamal, persons who fall through the cracks of the social safety net after news coverage moves on to the next story. The Roanoke City Council appointed the Gun Violence Prevention Commission in the summer of 2019 to study the rising levels of gun violence, identify its root causes, and create meaningful opportunities for positive, nonviolent living in our diverse city. Our nine-member commission is made up of social workers, mental health professionals, and clergy. Like many cities in America, incidents of gun violence in Roanoke have increased over the past 10 years. And while we are each horrified by the long litany of mass casualty shootings plaguing our nation, the type of gun violence we are working to reduce is gang-related with a deep taproot in the soils of poverty, racism, and the so-called urban renewal movement of the 1960s to 1980s. Many of the housing projects and neighborhoods where gun violence is concentrated are the product of this triplet of urban brokenness. I sought appointment to the Gun Violence Prevention Commission out of the commitment to peace and nonviolence I've learned as a lifelong member of the Church of the Brethren, one of the three historic peace churches, and my 18 years of pastoral leadership in Roanoke. The six Church of the Brethren congregations in our city have a long history of ministry with our entire community, an emphasis that has continued as incidents of gang-related gun violence are increasing in the high-poverty, historically Black Northwest quadrant of our city. My congregation finds great spiritual value in our outreach. We tithe our congregational giving and designate much of that money to nonprofit organizations that provide housing, counseling, and medical care to persons in need. Beyond our tithe, we regularly offer our time and talents to a nonprofit organization that builds beds for children who do not have them. We eagerly support our denomination's disaster response programs through special offerings. But two things are clear. The first is that ministries like these have real impact and address significant need. The second is that charitable giving has not yet touched Jada in a way that will change this new trajectory of her life. Jada's story offers a difficult combination of two uncomfortable facts that seem to be contradictory, but actually combine in a difficult truth. The social safety net is only barely keeping her head above water. Yet Jada did not come to the commission to ask for assistance. Even after she learned I am a pastor, she did not ask if my congregation could help her. Jada is simultaneously appreciative of the many who have helped her and is still struggling to keep her life together. All she insists is that our commission be aware of the people who are falling through the cracks and do something about it. As I drove home from our meeting that evening Jada spoke, it occurred to me that I have the privilege of choosing how to respond to people like her. Do persons in my white middle-class suburban congregation have any obligation to Jada? We share a faith, a city, and a common humanity. Each Sunday in worship, my congregation seeks reconciliation with God and one another by confessing that we have sinned against God in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. Could the struggle of Jada's family be something we have left undone? A challenge with familiar liturgy is that repetition leaves us deaf to our words granting us the privilege of keeping a deeper significance of prayer and the people and circumstances it represents at arm's length. What would we learn if we asked God to show us what we are leaving undone? How can we translate these words into action and, in so doing, produce fruit in keeping with repentance in a way that impacts a struggling neighbor? Such prayer might cause us to reconsider the meaning of neighbor. This is the issue at the heart of the parable of the Good Samaritan, 
a story so well known that the phrase Good Samaritan has long been part of our secular vocabulary. Jesus tells this story in response to someone who asks, who is my neighbor? In a story of persons who either do or do not assist a man badly wounded in a robbery, we find that being a neighbor means personally entering someone's suffering. The Samaritan man who provides assistance is held up as a model because of involvement that came at great personal and financial cost. His direct intervention sets the wounded man on the road to recovery, an intervention that came while others were so busy with religious obligations they had no time to be curious about a man who had been left for dead. Jada's story presents some difficult questions for us. Repenting of things left undone should not cause us to overlook the good work we are already involved in. Financially supporting those who serve our community extends the reach of our congregations and strengthens our neighborhoods in significant ways. What our repentance offers here is an invitation to go deeper, recognizing that healing the brokenness in our communities will involve a costly personal involvement. It might begin with a partnership with the congregation across town, where we show up and earn the right to hear stories like Jada's, while learning of both the beautiful and broken places and neighborhoods we rarely visit. It might mean investing our time and talents in ministries and programs that others are sponsoring, providing both assistance and encouragement for those already working on the front lines of brokenness. It might mean having our preconceptions shattered and our hearts touched about what life really looks like for neighbors we have not yet met. We live in a time where it's popular to blame others for the things they have done, but a commitment to public ministry challenges us to consider the things we have left undone. Thinking about people in situations we've never thought about, seeing people we prefer to overlook, challenging ourselves to invest our faith in a compassionate neighborliness that walks long, costly roads with people like Jada for whom there are no quick answers. We hope you enjoyed this episode. And if you did, be sure to share it with someone who you think would appreciate it. And we'd love to hear from you. And if you have any questions for Tim or for the podcast hosts, um, please get in touch by emailing us at foreshadowmagazine at gmail.com or reaching out on various social media platforms. We would love to encourage more dialogue and, um, and feedback that we can um, uh, include in our conversations. Foreshadow is a spirituality literary magazine rooted in the Christian faith. And you can visit our website at foreshadowmagazine.com to read new writings and listen to other work posted every week. Thanks for listening. That's the forecast for today.